turn in your Bibles once again to Mark chapter 7 where we will see this truth of what we have just sung about in Christ alone played out in the life of the Syrophoenician woman. Mark seven twenty four through 30 will be our text this morning. Consider this, what if you have found yourself in a foreign country? You are desperate for help and yet you were unable to get the help that you needed. Maybe you were desperate for relief, but all the avenues had been blocked. Some of you know that I have made a few trips to Haiti, and some of those trips were led by a man by the name of Dr. John Leiniger. Dr. John has a passion for the people of Haiti, and he's ministered to them for probably decades now and taken probably hundreds of trips. But on one particular trip some years ago, He found himself on the island in the midst of a political uprising. And in that political uprising, it had caused the entire island to be locked down. There was no way to get onto the island and there was no way to get off of the island. All mass transit had been shut down. Many of the roads were shut down. And it had become quite a dangerous place for anyone that was not of Haitian descent. And in desperation, Dr. John, to get off the island with the 16 or 17 other people that he was in charge of, made his way through back roads and avoiding blocks and riots and all these things. He made his way to some little cove that was just really not even on the map, didn't even know it was there. And he finds there a French national who has three boats and he sails off the island 34 hours later after being picked up by a Coast Guard cutter, finds himself in Cuba in Guantanamo Bay. This morning we find ourselves in Mark 7. And in much of the same way, we are going to meet a woman in a foreign country needing desperate help and finding no other avenues. But she will find help in Christ, just as Dr. John, my friend, found help with Christ that day. The same Christ that was then is the same Christ that is now. And as I stated in our welcome, I only have one point, and we're going to spin it like a diamond on a pedestal in as many ways as we possibly can look at it and see the glory of this statement. So if you're taking notes, here's the one point I have. The delight of humble, persistent faith in Christ. The delight of humble, persistent faith in Christ. This woman, this Gentile woman will display for us this morning as she displayed for the early church that Mark is writing to, the Gentile church, the delight of a humble, persistent faith in Christ. And if you have your Bibles open, look with me once again at Mark 7, verse 24, and I'm going to read it for us once again, and then we will look deeper. Mark seven twenty-four through 30. And from there, he, meaning Christ, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon 
has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The people of Tyre and Sidon have not only heard about Christ, they have visited Christ before. Back in chapter 3, verse 8, they come to see Christ. But this is the first time that Christ will have traveled to their region. Both Tyre and Sidon were and are still port cities along the Mediterranean. Sidon was about 20 miles north of Tyre. And Christ was somewhere around the Sea of Galilee. So he travels really sort of northeast to go to Sidon. Now Tyre, excuse me, Tyre and Sidon. Tyre was originally an offshore island. So if you look at a very, very old map, you would have seen uh, Tyre as a, I mean a very old map. You would have seen Tyre as an island that really protected the harbor behind it, attached to the mainland. But in 4 BC, I said, look, an old map. I meant that. 4 BC, Alexander the Great comes and he conquers the city and he does so by connecting the city, the island, that's a city, to the mainland. It wasn't really a landfill. It was more of a sea fill. He took a massive amount of earth and he made himself a peninsula so that he could walk out on a causeway out to the city of Tyre, which was then an island, and conquer it. And it does. And so now if you look at your map, it's actually a peninsula. And the people of Tyre and Sidon were not exactly on friendly terms with the Jews at that point. They were of Canaanite descent. They were Gentiles. They were idolatrous people. They were given over to great wealth on the back of a trade of glass and purple dye that was so expensive to mine that it was only associated with royalty because they're the only ones who could even afford this purple dye. And it was harvested out of a specific shell that you could find in that region. History tells us that during the revolts of the Maccabees, the people of Tyre and Sidon did not fight with the Jews and actually fought against them. So this trip was not an accident. It wasn't just wandering by some little city and, okay, let's stop in. I've never heard of these people. This was a, a city opposed in many ways to all that was Christ. Christ doesn't simply do anything by accident. He has a specific purpose in mind for this trip. There's always a plan in the Bible. Christ always has a plan. It's always a good plan. And the people of Galilee of Nazareth, back in chapter 6 of Mark, have rejected Christ. We saw that. And in the storyline of Mark, Christ is beginning now to turn his attention away from the people of Nazareth, the Jewish people, and to prepare the disciples for his departure that's coming up, as well as their ministry to follow. This trip to Tyre was purposeful. And some surmise that it wasn't a short-lived trip, as maybe have been as long as eight months ministering among the Gentiles. Now let's remember the context of last week. If you're still looking at your Bible, look just a few verses up. And we have noted over the past couple weeks that Christ was engaging here with the Pharisees and the scribes in Mark 7, 1 through 23. And he's calling the people to hear. He's calling the people to understand that what is on the inside of a person is what defiles them, not that which is on the outside. And we saw in verse 19 that all foods were declared clean. And that was a, a radical statement, if you remember, that the disciples would eventually understand all the way in Acts chapter 10 as an opening, as the opening of access to God. Now, through Christ, that it was no longer through birth, if you were an Israelite, 
or through a sacrificial or a ceremonial law or system. That was no longer the way to God. It was now through Christ and it was open to everyone. And for the Israelites, there was not only a food that was unclean, there were a people that were unclean. The people, the Gentiles, or we could say modern day us. We would have been unclean to the Jewish race at that time. Now Christ is seeking to teach his disciples a very important lesson here. And simply is, that simply is that the Gentiles now have access to God through Christ by faith. And I will flesh that out in a minute for us. But that's a wondrous statement for us. That we now have access to God through Christ by faith. And Mark, as I mentioned before, writing to the early Gentile church, this account is crucial for him to portray to the early Gentile church, to communicate to them, to, for them to realize, to, for them to have the understanding that all have access now to God by faith in the saving work of Christ. And he does so, Mark does so, and through Christ does so, by holding up to the disciples as a specimen for us of humble and persistent faith in this Syrophoenician woman. Now, Mark's introductions are helpful. Uh, you will notice that pretty much every story Mark uh, has told us in his gospel, he begins with sort of a short little scene setting, a verse or two where he sort of sets what's going to happen, and he brings in the characters and shows us where, he's, where this is taking place, and he does the same here. You'll notice there in verse 24, that Christ enters a house and he doesn't want to be known. He obviously wants some sort of private time. He did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But then, one of Mark's favorite words in this gospel, immediately. So he goes to a place that is in opposition to him, taking his disciples. He goes into this home. We don't know whose home it is. This woman immediately comes to him. And she comes to him for help. She comes to him with a great need. Now before we go much further, I wanted to, just as a point of application, note for us that Christ is again ministering to people within a home. And I found it interesting the amount of times we have seen in Mark Christ ministering in a home. And I just went back this week and noted them. This is the sixth time. Mark 1 verse 29, Christ heals Peter's mother-in-law within Peter and Andrew's home. In chapter 2, he heals the paralytic man who was lowered down through the roof by four men in a home. Later on in chapter 2, verse 15, he eats with the people at the home of Levi and engages really for the first time the Pharisees and the scribes. In chapter 3, he remembers his mother and his brothers. His mother and his brothers come to try to take him home thinking he's, he's out of his mind. His Christ is going crazy. Let's go get him. And they come to where he's located in verse 20 of chapter 3. He is within a home. End of chapter 5, finds Christ at the home of Jairus, healing his little girl. And then here, the sixth occurrence, chapter 7, verse 24. And I simply point that out to remind us that we should not neglect the home-based ministry. We often uh, look for ways to get involved with ministry, whether it's uh, this one or that one, or an opportunity that might come along to be able to share the gospel or to meet people that need the gospel of Jesus Christ. But let's not forget our own four walls as an opportunity for ministry. In fact, I think a, a healthy ministry of hospitality within one's own home, around your own table, over a meal, in your living room, having conversation, can often bear longer-lasting fruit 
than whatever ministry you might be engaging in as you cross over the threshold of your door. And let this passage be a spark of encouragement or maybe as a rebuke as necessary to use our homes faithfully to minister to others. And so you might just look around this morning and think, well, I haven't had that family over in a while or we've never had them to our house. Let me make a note. I'd like to invite them over to our home for a meal. Or maybe you think of the, the members that we affirmed a few weeks ago, the Klotz family or Brant Bernard, and think, well, I haven't had them to our home. Let's get to meet them and get to know them in a greater way. Let's have them into our home. Let's invite them in. And I think that you'll see great fruit from that. Now, notice the people that are involved in this scene that is set for us by Mark. It's in a home, and we have Christ, and we have this woman. Now, in the Jewish day, a woman was not treated with the same dignity afforded to a man. Men were held in greater esteem than women. For a woman, especially a married woman, to openly address Christ would have been a social and a cultural taboo, even for the Gentile culture that she was in. As an aside, I think it's important to note that it was Christ who would bring about cultural reform for the worth of womanhood. It is Christ who brings about the honor and the dignity and worth that we find in scriptures for women, for you ladies. Now notice that the contrast between Christ and the woman is not simply their gender. She's a Syrophoenician woman. She was a native or inhabitant of Phoenicia. That was part of the Roman province of Syria at that time. A a Gentile, as Mark tells us. So the tension of this scene would have been, like many others, a, a very intense scene. In a private place, this woman comes speaking to Christ in the presence of the Gentiles. But the tension wasn't simply man, woman, Gentile, Jew. The tension really was caused by the source, and the source was the fact that this woman had a need unable to be fulfilled by anyone other than Christ. And she recognizes that only Christ could accomplish what she desperately desired to see happen, namely, the deliverance of her daughter from demon possession. I think it's important for us this morning to to think about what may seem impossible for us this morning that we desperately need help in. Single young people, I was thinking of you this morning as I was writing and and thinking, does it seem impossible this morning that God could show you clearly where and how and what you should be doing within the coming years of your life? I remember being single thinking, surely this could be worked out, but it doesn't seem like there's any way at this point. What about if you're a husband or a wife this morning? Is it, a, is it a parenting struggle? Is it a conflict in your marriage? Satan loves Sunday mornings. He loves to take marriages apart as much as he possibly can just on the trip to church. You think, oh, it's a lot to settle. I'm not sure we can see a light, a way around the conflict that is going on. Whatever it is in your life this morning that you find yourself needing desperately to have an answer, the question really is, where are you going to turn? And I believe that this Gentile woman here in Mark should be an example for us and a reminder for us to turn to Christ. So how is your faith this morning and the ability of Christ to answer? That's really the root of it, isn't it? It's not whether you will turn to Christ, it's whether you have the faith and the ability of Christ to answer. 
We see this morning as I prayed already that we have a, a shamble in our political system. We see the murder of millions of unborn children. But do you also see this morning that Christ is ruling and reigning over all those things? So how is your faith this morning? Could it be said of you, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling naked. Come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me Savior or I die. The great hymn, Rock of Ages. He who is mighty to save for sin, from sin and the wrath of God is, is your friend this morning. Jesus and what a friend he is. He's your Savior both for eternity and that includes the events of today and the events of tomorrow and next year and all those to come. He saves you forever. Now let's look at this interaction between Christ and the woman and I want you to go with me to Matthew 15. I'm sort of violating one of my rules of preaching through Mark which is I didn't want to bring in Matthew and Luke. Just wanted to preach Mark on its own but Matthew's just too good. So we need to go to Matthew 15 to help sort of set up what is happening here in Mark 7 because in many ways Mark is bringing us in about two-thirds through this conversation with Christ and the woman. So go with me to chapter 15 of Matthew and look with me at verse 21. I'll read this for us. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have, this is not recorded in Mark, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So that's her first statement. She's pleading with Christ, help me. But notice how he answered. It almost seems cold and rude and heartless even, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Get rid of this woman. Do what you need to do. She's bothering us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Notice who he answers to. He doesn't answer to her. He answers to the disciples. But it's almost as if I'm talking to you and I want this person over here to hear. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, if you're an unbeliever this morning and you're listening to the story I imagine your line of thinking right about now about Christ is, you guys call this man good? He's merciful, he's loving, he's kind, really? He seems rude and heartless, has no pity for this woman? What about the kind and gentle Jesus that you all worship, who's supposed to care for people? That doesn't seem very kind and gentle. seems actually quite rude. He won't even address her. But remember, Christ is fully man and fully God. He knows this woman's faith. And in many ways, like like a beautiful diamond that doesn't have a backdrop, Christ is moving that diamond of faith out from the case onto the black velvet backdrop under the bright lights of his testing. 
in order that all the world might see, that we might see this morning, that it is humble, persistent faith that delights Christ. It delighted him then, and it delights him even now. The Puritan Richard Sibbs says this, of verse 27 of Mark. God does not always hear. God, excuse me. God does always hear, though he seems not to hear sometimes to increase our importunity. That means a persistent plea. Christ heard the woman of Canaan at first, but yet to increase her persistent plea, he gave her the repulse and denial and with the same the inward strength to wrestle with him. Again, God seems not to hear, but he delights in the music of his children's prayers. Oh, how he loves to hear the voice of his children. As a father, to hear the language of his child, though it be none of the best. So it is sweet music in God's ears to hear the prayers of his children. He will have prayers to be cries. Therefore, he defers to hear, but in deferring, he does not defer, for he increases our strength, as in Jacob's wrestling, that we might cry after him, wrestle with him, and offer violence, or grab hold onto him again. This woman is coming to Christ really less for herself at this point and more for her daughter. And it is a stark reminder by way of example of the importance of praying for one another, of intercessory prayer in the life of a believer. Praying specifically for one another. Assaulting even, using Sib's language there, violently the throne of grace. Begging, verse 24 in Mark 7, that word begged has a Greek meaning of to interrogate, to come before and, and plead. It calls to mind, this woman calls to mind the persistent widow of Luke 18 with the unjust judge. And the widow of Luke 18 is pleading persistently for justice. The woman here in Mark 7 is pleading for mercy. So whether it's pleading for mercy or for justice or for grace or for peace or hope or whatever it is that you're pleading for one another, are we doing that? Are you praying for one another faithfully? This woman stands as a great reminder to do so. And the disciples even beg Christ to send her away. He responds in her presence. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Notice, notice what I, I want you to notice very carefully is he does not deny her request. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't even address her request. He addresses her position as a Gentile. He's speaking to the disciples, but seemingly in a, in a manner of communicating to her and at the same time communicating to the disciples of her position as a Gentile. Remember, we just come off a passage of unclean. The disciples thinking, this woman's unclean. But she's not deterred for one second, is she? Instead of being repulsed by Christ, she's drawn closer to him in humility. Notice her posture. She falls, kneeling down at his feet. Matthew records her saying, Lord, help me. And that phrase, Lord, help me, is important. It's the inward communication of the, it's the outward communication of the inward heart desire that Lord alone, you are the one who can do this. Lord, help humbly pleading in faith, knowing by the testimony, testimony that no doubt had reached her ears of the many times Christ and his ability had to heal. 
And that phrase, Lord, help me, changes the tenor of conversation. Now, it doesn't seem like that on paper. But let me show you. Christ responds, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That doesn't seem like much of a change. It seems like more of an insult. And you need to understand a Greek word here to see the tenor change in the conversation. In the Greek, there are two words for dog, for the object dog. The, the Jews used one word, dog, in reference to the Gentiles. And Christ, Christ uses that word dog. He doesn't use the same Greek word because the Greek word for the Jews in pertaining to, as it pertained to the Greeks was really in derogatory terms. It's in terms of this mangy, dirty street hound deserving of some sort of swift kick if it got in your way. The term that Christ uses here for dog denotes a house pet. It denotes a little dog, a, a, a puppy, a loved upon and cared for object. And so you could really imagine Christ maybe sitting at a table in this house, speaking this phrase sort of tongue in cheek with a twinkle in his eye, reminding her of the truth according to that we now know in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That Christ was to come for Israel but knowing that if he said that, how she is going to respond. And she doesn't miss a beat. Her lines are almost well rehearsed here. Her faith is exceedingly strong. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table get to eat the children's crumbs. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in tents of wickedness. I would be gladly a dog under the master's, capital M, table. The good and gracious master that is Christ. The, t- the, the table of Psalm 23 can almost be pictured here that has been set for us by God. The table that is well worth being at and even under because Christ in abundance overflows off the table in this picture here. Enough for everyone, even the Greek. I think we should note this woman's humility. Do we have this kind of humility? How about your faith this morning? Is it persistent? Have you been praying according to his will and yet not seeing answers? Are you, are you giving up on those prayers? Is your prayer humble? Christ delights, as he does here, to award that type of faith because it places the glory of answered prayer squarely upon him and not us. Christ delighted in this woman's faith and healed her daughter from afar. God desires that our faith be one that is hot and not cold, as told to us in Revelation. And his grace is such that he will use tests of our faith to prevent a lukewarm attitude toward him. You want to know why that answer of prayer isn't happening? He doesn't want a cold faith. He loves you too much for that. His grace is too sufficient for that. So he will test that faith in order that it might be found hot, fiery. But notice the theme this morning. The delight of humble, persistent faith 
in Christ. And if we, if we knock off the words in Christ, we're really left with strains of, of the word faith movement. We're left with the hope being in our abilities that I could just be humble and persistent enough, this will work. But that really removes any possibility of humility because it now puts all the focus on me as having to be enough. But when the true delight is in Christ, it's now no longer the object of it's now no longer the faith that's delight. It's now the object of our faith, namely Christ. Christ is the one who in verse 37 of Mark 7, we're told, does all things well. And for the believer, Christ is our greatest delight. For the believer, when we are to take out of that phrase, pluck out of it, and simply focus on humble and pers- persistent, we do so to the detriment of delight in Christ. When we delight in Christ, notice then humility and persistence and a strong faith follows. The delight and humble, persistent faith in Christ. He's infinitely worthy of our delight. He's done all things well. And so if you're if you're here by God's providence and recognize that you have no delight in Christ, or even, or even an inclination to delight in him, and yet you want to delight in him, you, you've realized at the time we've just spent in the word this morning, under the preaching of the word, that you're unsaved. Then the question for you is simply, how do you find delight in Christ? How do you obtain the faith that finds delight in Christ? Luke 14, 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The answer really lies in humility. But we're not going to just sort of drum up that humility on our own. Humility begins and, and really even ends beginning with a recognizing that God in his holiness, in his perfection, has declared that all sin is to be punished by death, that all sin is rebellion against him, who is a holy God, our creator. And so if you recognize today that God is holy and good and yet also just and has determined that all sin should be punished, you can be left with only one way to turn because it's not inward. We looked at that last week. Inward for the unbeliever is contamination. Look with me at verse 29. Go back with me to Mark Seven. Look with me at verse 29. I want, I want you to put your eyes on, on the text there in verse 29 of Mark 7. Notice, and he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. What statement is he referring to? He's referring to verse 28. He's referring to the confession of this woman in verse 20, 28. And by by application, it should be noted that what we confess or profess about God, about man, about Christ is vitally important. Many people today, if you were to ask them, do you believe in God? They'll simply say, yes, I believe in God. But that's not enough to simply stop there. What you confess is vitally important. Matthew 12, 34, out of the heart 
The mouth speaks, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you want to have delight in Christ, you don't find that, you don't, you realize that God in his perfection has condemned you as a sinner to death and your only hope is Christ, then what do you do? And it's simply to turn. It's simply to look at Christ. To acknowledge that Jesus, by his death, has paid for your sin. And to acknowledge that by his resurrection, he's given you the promise of eternal life. There is hope. You can come to Christ. You can be saved. You can have a right relationship with God. That delight, that humble, that persistent faith can be yours and it's given to you. That's the irony of this passage. This is not simply something that we dredge up. It's a gift given to you as we recognize what Christ has done for you. He is ruling, reigning now in heaven. And for those who are saved, he is to rule and reign our lives. That is the mark of a believer, is that Christ is not only Lord, he is, excuse me, he's not only Savior, he is Lord. If you desire Christ, confess your sin, repent, see the work of Christ alone as the merit for your salvation. Let's close here. By turning once again to the context of this passage. Brothers and sisters, is it not a wondrous grace that the dividing wall of hostility with God has been broken, even crushed by the blood of Christ? The the flood, as we sang about this morning, of his blood has broken down that wall. Is it not a wonder that we have the ability to access, come before the throne of God by the merit of Christ? Is it not a wonder that according to Ephesians 2, we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ? As Christ drew this woman even to himself, Christ is drawing us from the world of sin and to himself. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to Christ in one body through the cross, thereby killing, killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far and peace to those who were near. If we were in Jerusalem at the dime and day of Christ, on the wall of the outer courtyard of the temple there in Jerusalem was a warning to us as Gentiles that we would have only ourselves to blame for our death if we were to pass into the inner courts of the temple. But that wall no longer stands for us as Gentiles. As As an impediment to God, Christ has broken down that wall. This is in much what Christ, what Mark is trying to convey to the New Testament church, what he's trying to encourage us with, 
that we who were once alienated from God have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. There is no longer any wall, whether it's a wall of law or commandment or sacrificial system or ceremonials. There's no longer any. We are able to come to God by the blood of Christ. We who were once unclean are now clean in Christ. We who were once foreigners in the heavenly realm are now citizens of the kingdom. And all, all of this, because of his amazing grace that has given us a delight and humble, persistent faith in Christ. So whatever it is this week, let us not grow weary in drawing near, humbly, persistently, delighting in Christ because we now have that access that once we never had, but now through Christ, we have access by faith. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to know that it is in, by grace alone, in faith alone, through Christ alone, for the glory of God alone that we are saved. And not of works that any man should boast. What a grace is it, Father, that you have chosen to save us. We who were your enemies, you have now loved and do love Father, may we find humble, persistent faith as we yet again this week seek to find delight in Christ, recognizing that he is the one who has given access to you, our God. We thank you, Father, for this morning. We thank you for your word ministering to us. May it encourage us and strengthen us for this week. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.